Hello, and welcome to this edition of the ETA Insider Podcast, sponsored by the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Today, we're coming to you live from Chicago Booth Harper Center in beautiful Hyde Park. I'm Brian O'Connor, Adjunct Professor of Entrepreneurship at Chicago Booth, and joining me today, I have the pleasure of having my friend, Brian Vanderhayden, back on the show. Brian is an MBA from 2014, and he's the CEO of Glass Lake Holdings. We previously had Brian on the show in 2020 when he was the CEO of Richmond Alarm Company, acquired in July of 2017 out of his search fund. On that show, we talked about a whole host of topics, how Brian was introduced to search funds, why he ultimately chose ETA, how he began his search to ultimately acquire a business, what attracted him to Richmond Alarm Company as an acquisition target, and some of the trials and tribulations associated with finding his way into a 70-year-old family-owned company, and then pretty quickly finding his way into a global viral pandemic of COVID-19. So, Brian, it's nice to have you back on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. There's been a lot that has transpired since our last podcast recording. Why don't you give us a little bit of an update and maybe start back from when we last talked, and I would encourage our listeners and everyone in the audience to check out that podcast. It's a, a very insightful conversation with Brian. Give us the update since mid-2020 when it felt like the world was falling apart. Yeah, I remember being hunkered down in my house, talking to you remote, trying to get a rundown of how I bought the business and what had transpired. And then, of course, we had to cover the COVID issues. I think you mentioned that you might have locked yourself in a closet. You know it wasn't a zombie apocalypse, right? It was just- Well, a- we didn't know at the time, and I have too many kids, so I ran out of rooms in the house. So it was, I was hunkered down in the closet doing work, tracking cash and all the good stuff, making sure we were good, which we were. Shortly thereafter, though, everybody came back to the office. In fact, our employees wanted to come back into the office, so it was a smooth transition. I know a lot of people still today are having a tough time with back into the office, remote work, et cetera. But we were pretty fortunate. You know, our technicians were great. They never actually took a day off. People needed their security systems fixed the next day despite COVID. And that's, they were a, that's a mission critical service. Exactly. Exactly. And so we had to figure out very quickly how to navigate that. But all good. Made it through. And really with no issues. You know, everybody was concerned about cash or everybody I knew was counting the cash they had and how many days of operations they had left. And hopefully for most people, it was all for naught. So we ended up continuing to run that business. And then we will get into this here. We took it to market in late 2020. And we ended up selling the business to Johnson Controls in May of 2021. So let's talk about what that looked like, bringing a business to market during the depths of a global viral pandemic. It sounds like you engaged an investment bank to help you run that process. We did, yep. Yeah. And so were there any nuances or particular implications of going through an exit process and hiring a bank and holding management meetings and doing all that stuff amid what was going on in the world? Well, it was certainly interesting. It was the first time I had brought a business to market. So sort of N of one, but management meetings were all virtual. So we could do more management meetings. We could sell the story to a broader group. So that was good. I think the trade-off there was you lose the in-person touch and feel of trying to actually sell the business. It is a sale process. And then we didn't know what was going to happen with credit markets. I mean, that was another 
point of turmoil or uncertainty. And so we didn't know exactly what we were going to fetch in the market. So it was really taking it to market with a good idea of what the business would garner in terms of valuation, but a fair amount of uncertainty as to whether it would actually actually yield what we wanted. Sure. So let's put a pin in that for a second. I want to come back to it. But before we do, so what transpired between when we had you on the podcast the first time in the ultimate decision to engage a banker to assist you with the sale of your business. What led to that ultimate decision to exit? Yeah, we were, so when COVID hit, we were three plus years into our hold period. And so you start to look at what the horizon looks like for the hold period continuing. And we had done a lot with the business. We had overhauled the sales and marketing function. We had executed a bunch of efficiencies in the operations department. We had done M&A. We had bolted on three companies at the time. And so really the path forward for us was M&A driven, which doesn't exactly fit with the search. A roll up per se doesn't exactly fit with the search crowd. You'd much rather have a large pool of capital to go execute the roll-up. And so we thought, well, maybe there is a different financial partner that we could pursue and then execute a roll-up in the mid-Atlantic area. Sure. Maybe a stage and strategy appropriate capital partner for the next leg of growth. That's right. Things, you know, it's interesting, this model, as you know, is evolving quickly. And there, I would say today, there's more appetite and more vehicles, more structures that would facilitate an inorganic growth strategy, as, as you That's know. Right. In fact, we've invested in a business that had capital set aside for M&A since selling the business to Johnson Controls. Sure. Yeah. But, but back mid-2020, late 2020, it was a little bit of a different yeah. environment. Okay. So let's talk about the process of, of engaging the banker and then ultimately putting together all of the materials, which is a huge lift. Anybody that's gone through it will know. And then kind of the profile of how you thought about the ideal buyer for your business. Yeah. The process itself, we hired a great banker. He was phenomenal. I'm sure there's a bunch out there. He was fantastic working with us, really guiding me through the process. So a searcher by definition is typically inexperienced as an acquirer. They're even less experienced as someone to sell a business. And so it was my first time going through that process. It was very eye-opening. But he he held my hand through the entire thing, the creation of materials, making sure that we told the story correctly. Sim layout was very important. The list of buyers was very important. And then I had an extremely constructive board. And that was throughout the entire hold period in particular at the end. And we're talking dry runs of management meetings to make sure we were hitting the right notes on the right slides with what we wanted to say and some of the best attributes of the business and ultimately where the buyer could take the business. So I would break down the world in terms of, we basically had two camps of potential acquirers. It was strategic buyers and financial buyers. And I can't exactly remember how big our list was, but it was a substantial sized list on both groups. And the curation of that list presumably was led by the banker that you ultimately decided to engage. Exactly. He provided the initial draft list. The board added some market knowledge to that. I did as well. And and that was essentially who we reached out. Was it important that that banker had some domain expertise in the world of security, home security systems, or was that less important to you and your board when you ultimately made the decision to partner with the banker that you did? Ultimately, it was less important. He did not have security experience per se. 
Yeah, he had sold multiple recurring revenue businesses and maybe a different widget, but very sure. similar business model and whatnot. So I would say that part was very important. He wasn't out selling construction businesses or retail businesses. It was recurring revenue service businesses. So he was very instrumental, but I would say the industry was less important. Given at that time, your limited experience, both on the buy and sell side, and presumably that's the experience of most ETA professionals, not all, but many or most, would you advise the engagement of a banker or broker on the exit in almost any circumstance? I would. It would be interesting to chat through the nuances of when you would not want to, but I imagine there's very few situations. Yeah, great. So let's talk about these two buyer categories, the, the universe of financial buyers universe of strategic buyers, you ultimately, as I understand, decided to partner with a strategic buyer. How did you think about those two universes, what it might have meant for the business going forward, and what it might have meant for Brian going forward? Yeah, sure. So fiduciary responsibility to investors is really get a high valuation, right? That's sort of mission number one, 1A, I'll call it. 1B, top of my mind, was really what was going to happen to the people, the employees that got us to, you know, we ultimately doubled the business. So what was going to happen to the employees that helped us get there? They had bought into my vision when I came in 2017, took me in, treated me as family. And so I wanted to make sure that they were taken care of. And just for perspective, yeah. how many employees at the time of acquisition and how many employees when you ultimately sold the business? Yeah, it was about six mid-60s when we acquired it and about 90 when we sold it. Yeah. So these were people that, you know, many of them, you, of course, formed relationships during your tenure as CEO, but many of them, you also had a very close vested interest in because they were folks that you hired. Exactly. And some people that had been with the company for 35 years. Sure. And so they had, you know, the Richmond Alarm brand was more than just Brian and the investors running a company. It was what they wore every day. And so we wanted to make sure that they were taken care of. I, I would call that 1B. I wouldn't even call it 2. I would call it 1B. And then ultimately I had to think, as you said, what does this mean for me as part of that evaluation? So as we thought through it, ultimately there wasn't a huge valuation difference between the two buyers. Some may think that strategics could pay more, there's synergies, et cetera, but we, we didn't experience that. In terms of the employees, we got guarantees from everybody involved in the process that they were going to keep all employees around. In particular, there's a call center at Richmond Alarm. We ran a call center as part of that business. And typically firms would outsource that work or it was easy to outsource that work. Now, we happened to find a strategic that wanted that business. They were at capacity at other call centers and actually needed this call center. So that, that worked out really well. But we had guarantees from all others that they were going to maintain employees, which was important to us. And you made the comment that, you know, traditional thinking says, well, a strategic buyer might be able to realize some synergies and therefore be able to pay a premium valuation to that universe of financial buyers that may not necessarily have the same ability on day one. And that, that makes intuitive sense. That wasn't your experience. What was N? What was the sample size in each of those categories approximately? How many yeah. expressions of interest or IOIs or maybe LOI submissions did you receive? Yeah, I would say there was somewhere between 60 and 100 between the two strategic and financial groups. And it was probably about 50-50, if I remember yeah, right. Yeah, so, so your banker did a nice job creating some yeah. competitive tension around this asset. The exactly. capital markets certainly were 
while a bit uncertain due to COVID, were working in your favor. I mean, we were going into about as hot as M&A market as I can recall. So you had a capital market dynamic working in your favor. You had seemingly a capable banker that created some tension around this. So you you had an ability to kind of pick and choose who your ultimate partner was. Yeah. And, and really the way it all narrowed down after multiple conversations and biddings, bid phases, et cetera, it was really between two strategics. That's really what we were trying to decide between was two strategics that we thought we would have been happy with either one. All right. So let's get into that. Yeah. Who, big reveal. Who is the group that won the day and what sort of tipped the scale in their favor? Yeah. We ultimately sold it to Johnson Controls. And Frankly, they got pretty aggressive on some of the, we'll call it non-financial terms. That's another element of the bidding process that was fun to experience. They essentially matched valuation and then got more aggressive on some of the terms. Again, both of them were already going to take care of the people. Both of them had the same plan for me personally, and so we can get into that. But really, ultimately, it came down to what they were going to do with the business from a growth standpoint, which is you know, why they could get more aggressive on the terms. Sure. And Brian, to the extent that you can share, was there any rollover equity or economic nuance that kept you vested in the ultimate growth plan and the success of this business? Aside, of course, from the team and the customers that you serve and wanting to leave a good legacy, was there any economic? Interestingly enough, now maybe with a financial buyer, that would have been the case, but with two strategics at the table, Johnson Controls, ultimately who we sold to, is a publicly traded company. So there was no rollover opportunity with them. And frankly, at that point in time, you know, I had come from a Fortune 100 background and and jumped out of that into the ETA world, which I always thought of as you know, ETA as a career, and really wanted to continue pursuing ETA. And we can get into some details on that. So I didn't really want to be with Johnson Controls longer term or in that type of situation working for a, a large corporation. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It just wasn't what I wanted. So it was very mutual. It was actually really great to work through what the defined transition plan would look like, defined activities, et cetera. So let's talk about that. So there are decidedly implications for you as the ETA professional turned CEO now thinking about a transition or not, you know, or potentially continuing on and helping your new partners effectuate the new strategy and growth plan. How did you think about your desires, personally, professionally, vis-a-vis the group that you, you know, Johnson Controls, who you ultimately sold to? And what did the transition period look like? Sure. Yeah. So I worked with Johnson Controls for, it was a defined six-month period, which then was extended for a couple months. So I was effectively there for eight months. And then jokingly, but not really jokingly, I took a year off to meet my family again. Uh, ETA is a, is a deep dive endeavor and takes 110% of mental energy and time. And so it was actually really refreshing. I, I picked up some hobbies, which you know we can, we can go into if people are interested, but took a year off. And I think it was great introspection moment as well to figure out exactly what I did want to do next. I, I will say, though, backing up to when we sold to Johnson Controls, what I knew is I wanted to then go invest and likely buy more companies. That was sort of leader in the clubhouse idea of what, what I personally wanted, especially once I had wrapped my head around, it's not going to be a financial buyer with a multiple-year commitment and equity rollover, et cetera. I really leaned in and looked forward to investing and buying more. And as you had some of these conversations and management meetings with the financial buyers, did it become clear to you that a critical component of their investment thesis and ultimately the price and structure that they were willing to pay for 
Richmond Alarm Company was predicated on your continued involvement. I mean, that's- That's right. Yeah. So that was the case. Yeah, exactly. It was very clear up front that they wanted someone to be in charge and that someone should be the person that was there for the four years prior that doubled that business and and that, that they wanted that continuity. And so that was part of the evaluation process. And that would have been okay. I I would not have disliked it, but it would not have, it, it was not my preferred avenue. Well, it's an interesting thought, and the reason I'm double-clicking on it is because our audience and our, our listeners are a bit of a unique type of buyer. They're decidedly not a strategic buyer, and they're not really the, sort of this conventional financial buyer that requires in 100% management continuity. They are the operational transitional solution, right? So for our listeners and, and for our audience, this may represent an opportunity for you to come into a situation like this and position yourself to Brian, his board, his investors as a unique alternative. No? Yeah, that's exactly right. Did you talk to any searchers during the process? We did not. Several searchers reached out, you know, the classic once or twice a week (laughs) via email prior to us exiting. You found your way onto a, a couple of drip campaigns? Exactly. Yeah. In fact, some of them were very compelling and I responded just based on that. Yeah. Yeah. First question, is this a robot? When you get a human response, then you can engage. Now you have to ask if it's AI, I guess. (laughs) So let's go sort of beyond the transition period. How did you think about, aside from reintroducing yourself to your family, which is great, what did you think about life post-exit? How did you think about that? We Now a big topic that I love exploring is kind of this arc of the ETA career path and the ETA journey and it not just being isolated to a single moment in time where you find a company, buy it, lead it for a holding period and then exit. How did that work for you personally? We should spend some time because this, it's a real conundrum, I guess, for people out there. So you, you, when I left a Fortune 100 company and went into ETA, I didn't know exactly where all of that would lead. But I did know it would be great if I could do ETA as a career forever, which is buy companies, run companies, invest in companies, et cetera. And and what you guys have done at Booth with the class and other institutions have done, the whole entire search fund ecosystem, ETA ecosystem has exploded. It's been unbelievable to watch since, since I started. You know, and so I talk to people that are anywhere from a, one times exit to a 6X MOIC, 5X MOIC, everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's saying, what's next? Now, maybe you get into a 10X outcome or something like that, and it's probably different challenges that you'd face. But for the vast, vast, vast majority of the people, it's, what am I going to do next? I bought a business when I'm, I don't know what the average age is, low 30s, and then I sold it when I was mid to upper 30s. And there's a lot of runway to go. And sure. so- I had a lot of that introspection time. I've talked to a lot of, a lot of other people about what that's like. And for me personally, it really came down to, and, and, and had a lot of help from investors on uncovering, are you an investor or are you an operator? That was the question from at least a dozen investors. And it's, it's the right question. It's the right thing to think about. As I thought about it, I mean, certainly there were things that I loved about operations and there were things that I didn't love about operations. Ultimately, what, what I decided on was I, I really like operating. I want to do it at some scale, not 
all in on one company for another, call it five years, or, you know, there's a search period plus, plus operations. And so we started Glass Lake Holdings. We can go into some details on that, but it's sort of a hybrid amongst all of those things, amongst investing and operating, but heavily leaning towards operating. So your answer to that question from investors was yes. Are exactly. You an, are you an investor <laughs> or are you an operator? Yeah. Yes. I, I, I would say though, if, if you think about where they were going with, are you an investor? That was more institutionalized, pure investor, no time in company per se, board for sure, but as a pure investor. Whereas where we've settled is definitely more towards the operator focus, but with some minor scale. Is so what call it. that's a great transition. Let's talk about where you've settled. Let's talk about Glass Lake Holdings. You're the CEO of Glass Lake Holdings. Talk a little bit about that model, the strategy, how you've designed the firm and your efforts. Let's get into that. Yeah. So going all the way back to 2015, when I raised a search fund, there were several people in my cohort, let's call it, very loosely defined cohort, but other people that were going through the same process. And, and I formed some long lasting friendships based on those early experience of part commiseration about what the heck we are starting and also swapping best practices on what works, what doesn't work. How are you going to go find a company? Ultimately that turned into how do I raise money? How do I build a board? How do I hire and fire and navigate COVID and, and, and ultimately exit? And so a person that I had formed a long lasting relationship with during that time, his name is Zach Perry. He's my partner at Glass Lake Holdings. And he sold his business a couple months after me in August of 2021. So we were both going through this meet the family introspection period and independently came up with a similar thread along the lines of, are you an investor or are you an operator? Which is leaning towards operator with some small scale. So we said, you know, it would be really great. Let's partner up. Let's do this together. We were both solo searchers from the get-go. It's a very lonely world. A partnership can be a superpower. One plus one can equal three. Let's go do this. And so what we ultimately set up was essentially a, a search fund that goes and acquires a business. We, Zach or Brian, will step in as the operator for 12 months and then, assuming all goes well, replace ourselves fairly quickly. And then that allows us to acquire at least two businesses to start and potentially three, four, et cetera. And so again, not scalable to 20, not probably not even scalable to 10, but scalable to a small number. So I want to get a status update on what's going on with Glass Lake Holdings. But before we do that, you talked about this period of time where you very likely were in communication and relationship with Zach throughout both of your respective exit processes. But I, one of the things I harp on and spend a lot of time with our students and folks that we invest in is the importance of this ETA community. And this really is a unique model, asset class, you know, part of the ecosystem that is so community driven. Would you agree with that? And how did you think about maintaining that community and fostering it as you were operating and, and ultimately going through your exit process. I can give you some examples. So one partner with Zach, who I met in 2015, when we were both bumping into each other, you know, as searchers, not knowing what exactly to do. When I exited, 
investors were at the ready to answer questions, help me with that introspection period. As I mentioned, when I, when I was talking before about investor operator, that was questions coming from investors. I didn't independently come up with that question as, hey, this is, this is the framework I need to apply. And then you visit the conferences. Booth hosts a great one. There's others. It's a bunch of great people too. That's what's really unique about about this is everybody's willing to help and everybody's willing to pay it forward. And, and, and I'm in that camp as well. So yeah, I, I think the community of ETA is second to none. I, I've never seen anything like it before. So back to class like, how long have you and Zach been at it? Where are you at in your search? It's a modified derivation of the traditional search fund model and all of these other models, the sponsored models, self-funded, really cool things about the universe that we live in is that this is a rapidly changing and dynamic model. So I don't even know that you can put what you're doing at Glass Lake into a bucket. That's kind of cool. Part family office, part independent sponsor, part search fund. I don't know what exactly you'd call it. Another element of the community is they allow this type of innovation to take place. You know, it's not massive innovation, but there are tweaks to the yeah. model that can take place and, and, it, and it gets traction. So we'll see. We started in August of 22. So several months in at this point. And our first LOI was signed in December. It was a software business, really liked the business, very interesting. Investors were very intrigued. It fell apart because of, let's call it some technical diligence, technical diligence in light of the valuation we had to pay. And so ultimately that LOI fell to the wayside and, and they went in a different direction and that's fine. And then we just got another LOI signed about a month ago and we're, it's a service business. So we're, we're really looking forward to diligence on that. Everything looks positive so far, you know, as well as I do, anything can happen. So it's, it's not over till it's over, but uh, yeah, ideally we close that one this summer. That's deal number one. So one deal in the first year, we would consider that a success. I know Zach and I both signed our first LOI in our first search at, I, I think it was somewhere between month 16 and 18. And so rapidly accelerated timeline on this one. So yeah, we've got experience. And would you attribute that accelerated pace to any lessons learned or stubbed toes that each of you individually encountered during your initial search phase when you were independently operating? Yeah, it takes a while to get up the learning curve on exactly how to reach out to companies, what to say to owners, what to present to them to try to drive a deal forward. And we're up that learning curve. And so I, I guess we we accelerated through that part of the curve. There's a lot of models out there now that can help people get over that. A lot of investors are doing work to help people get over that initial learning curve. But but it was real back in 2015 when when we faced it. And so, yeah, I think uh, as a result of the experience that we've had, it's it's been helpful. So, Brian, now that you find you and Zach find yourself in, I don't know if I want to ascribe percentages to it, but, you know, 60 to 75% operators, you know, the remainder investors. I have a question around you and Zach as investors. How critical do you believe, and you both believe, that operating period where you were respectively running your small businesses, how important is that for you today as you evaluate opportunities or assess talent or try to quantify risk or think about the growth plan ahead of whatever business that it is that you and Zach ultimately make as your first acquisition out of class. Like, was that a critical step in your career to be effective in what you're endeavoring to do now? I wouldn't have thought so 
prior to operating. Post-operating, I can absolutely see the value in that. And, and as example, as we talk to owners about what the future growth of their business looks like, we can immediately translate that into what we face. It's like, okay, that's great that you're... Example, we're going to invest in marketing. What are you going to do in marketing? We're going to do partnerships. We're going to do some inbound. We're going to do some outbound stuff. Okay, well, yes, that's all of the options you have. Now let's see what the ROI looks like on each one of those activities. You can, you can just drill a lot deeper, have real conversations about what we did that worked, what we did that didn't work, and translate that to what these businesses are trying to do today, which I think ultimately, I hope, ultimately helps with underwriting that investment. So would you give our audience and our listeners the advice of, you know, pay attention to who you ultimately take capital from, because these are folks that, you know, will we'll be able to help you be more thoughtful when navigating some of these more challenging operational questions that you might face when trying to have a thoughtful conversation with a business owner. Absolutely. So when we went out and looked for investors that we would partner with on Glass Lake Holdings, our criteria was 100% operators. So they can run investment funds, whatever it might be, but they had to have run a business at some point in time. And 100% of our LP group and others that we would introduce deals to have been operators of businesses. It's very cool. There's just a different perspective. And good luck on that LOI. And I do Thanks. know that they yeah. can fall apart. And hopefully yes. this one does not. Last question I have, and then I think we're going to open it up to our audience, which is a cool element of doing this live. How have you thought about designing your life. This is probably not a topic that comes up if this was like a investment banking or management consulting podcast, but one of the cool things about ETA is that you know, you mentioned that when you were running your business and running your search, you think about it all the time, but you also have the flexibility to design the life and especially now that you've gone through an exit and have designed Glass Lake in the way that you and Zach want to design it. How do you think about that relative to your life, your priorities? You mentioned some hobbies, which I'm not going to let you off the hook on. I want to want to hear about what hobbies you picked up during this whole thing. How have you thought about all of that in the mix of Brian's life? Yeah, I will say when I decided to go into ETA, it was not a consideration of mine. But a couple stories of examples of how the ETA life is different than corporate life, which is all I can compare it to. So we moved to Richmond. We had three kids at the time. We now have four. All of our family was back in Chicago, where I originally searched from. And during the summers, we would drive the family back to Chicago. They would stay for six weeks or so. We had all of our friends and family here, and they were involved in camps and activities and whatnot. And, and those things exist in Richmond, but the foundation was in, was in Chicago, our personal foundation. And I would fly back and forth. I would stay here for maybe four days, fly back for a week or whatever it might, it might have been. And that was never even a consideration when I worked in corporate America. I mean, there was defined paid vacation time and you had to abide by the policies. So that was one example of even though it was 110% of my time and mental energy, I was still able to take longer breaks, let's call it like odd timing breaks with family. And that was, that was really helpful to build foundation with, with my kids. And then when we sold the business, got into mountain biking, got into baking beer at home. I guess the two are, they're sort of like polar opposites of each other. One unhealthy, one healthy, but it was- Well, it was cold great. beer after a mountain bike ride is pretty nice. I wouldn't mind it. Yeah. It was good. So now that you've gone through the exit and how I would say you probably have more 
autonomy and control of your calendar and how you curate your life. What does that look like? I know you, you've got, like me, you have four young children and I know you're a sports enthusiast. You coach baseball. How does all of that kind of come together? It allows for it full stop. I think corporate America for me was just a different experience. It was all in all the time with defined PTO, as I said. Now, I'm, I would like to think I have control of my own calendar, but meetings with sellers or meetings with investment bankers or diligence providers sort of take that up, but that's okay. Yeah, I'm coaching baseball, as, as we mentioned. I've, I've gotten my kids into golf, which is absolutely a selfish endeavor. I appreciate that, but that's okay. My wife's okay with it. So yeah, spending more time with the family and really, as, as you mentioned, I, I like the way you worded it, designing your life, which I had never intentionally done prior to now, but, but ETA does allow for, for the work-life integration, we'll call it. Brian, any final pieces of advice or words of wisdom that you'll give our audience or our listeners before we open it up for Q&A? Question I get asked all the time is, should I do search? I'm considering search. What should I consider? What should I think about? And I think if search speaks to you, if tr buying your own business, running your own company, you know, being in charge of your own work-life balance, so to speak, if, if that appeals to you, it'll speak to you. It'll call to you. Talk to as many people as possible. I'm happy to get on the phone and, and again, pay it forward. A lot of people gave me advice before I started searching. I'm, I'm happy to do the same. But I think the only way through it is to continue to ask questions of other people, find if it's right for you. It's a very individual decision, individual with you and your family. And I couldn't imagine life any other way. So I'm going to be a huge advocate for it. If you come to me, just know you're going to get that side of the story, but I'm a fan. Brian, as we're getting the microphone teed up, I just want to offer a sincere thank you on behalf of Chicago Booth, on behalf of the Polsky Center and the entire ETA community and all of our listeners and our audience here today. Your insights and your investment of knowledge into this community is, is sincerely appreciated. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, of course. I'm happy to be here. And I, I want to echo that. I appreciate what you guys are doing for the ETA community through the Polsky Center. It's, it's absolutely remarkable to watch. And I'm, I'm honored to serve on the advisory committee to help with the direction of that, but you guys are doing a phenomenal job. Thank you. Hey, thanks for the time today. One question, just curious how your time as CEO has at Richmond Alarm Company has influenced your sourcing and diligence strategy with Glass Lake Holdings. And if you have any key takeaways during your first round that you're heavily influencing. Yeah, it, it has. I got a bunch of emails, as I mentioned, one or two a week from people interested. And it wasn't just search crowd. It was private equity or buy side bankers. And what always stood out to me was some unique industry or company anecdote, fact, whatever it might be that jumped off the page. And so, yeah, we don't do as much email marketing because I know it probably doesn't land like I thought it did when I originally searched. But if we are going to do any email marketing or try to get in touch with companies, it's really focused on what can we find about that business or about that industry or about that owner that would jump off the page. And why is Brian particularly or uniquely situated to be an interesting enough potential partner for that business owner to be inclined to respond to you? Because exactly. they are getting inundated. 
Yeah, it's exactly right. And so a lot of times we'll mix in some of our experience. I think you don't even need to necessarily operate a business to have done that, right? You can have experience in with running an M&A process or a deal or operating in a consulting engagement, or there, there's a variety of experiences that you get before being a searcher and you could bring all of that to the table. How's it going? My name is Darren Williams. I'm class of Q4, taking the time. So how did you prime your family for like your open geographic search, you know, wife and kids moving from, I like Richmond, but it's not Chicago. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> so we originally lived in Chicago, moved away to San Francisco, and then moved back to Chicago to attend school and ultimately to search. And so my wife was already exposed to another living environment, even though all of our family was here. And so she was, I would say, already open to it. I didn't really have to prime that. The other thing, again, it's all in an individual or family decision. We had three kids at the time. And so there were, there was a certain list of criteria on any given city that we just, you know, if they had great restaurants and food, low on our list, didn't really care about that. I mean, Richmond does actually have a decent food scene, but there were certain things like that, which I think are individual to you. It might be different for me, but no, we, I didn't have to prime the family. My wife did ask two questions before I jumped out of the, the Fortune 100 corporate world into search. And it was, is this really what you want to do? I'm like, well, I have to say yes. I've been trying to convince you this for months now. And can we go bankrupt? And I'm like, I don't think so. I don't know. <laughs> and so that, that was all the priming I needed to do. So a follow-up question on the new Glass Lake holding strategy that you have. You mentioned that you would acquire a business and then run it for 12 months. Would you co-locate with that business or would you think about operating remote? And then secondly, do you have any concerns about being able to attract and maintain leadership, CEOs, executives in these companies? Or do you think that you would maintain maybe the existing leadership that's already in place? Yeah. We haven't come across many situations where leadership would remain in place. Part of our pitch is founder is exiting. We're going to come in and take the reins, similar to traditional search, traditional ETA. So we haven't found those situations. I don't think we'll have a problem recruiting talent. Uh, you know, we've set aside some of the equity pool for the person that we're going to bring in. It's, it's very similar to what search would look like for that person. So I don't think that we'll have an issue with that, but... Here we are pre-deal. We'll see how it, how it all unfolds. I have a follow-up question to that one. As you think about the archetype of that person, is it, you know, does it look, and I'm sure you and Zach have had this conversation, does it look more like a searcher archetype or is it a industry veteran that's maybe had a few tours of duty within that particular industry or business model. Yeah, we've definitely had that conversation and it's probably more searcher-like. Now, I don't know if I mentioned it, part of the reason why we want to jump in and operate for a year is to better understand that business and be a better support for the CEO when they're in place. I mean, we're not we're not jumping in CEO, parachuting out and then visiting for quarterly board meetings. This is a very involved board position and mentorship position. So, yeah, it's probably more search-like, but TBD. Hello. Can you talk about your personal risk tolerance and how it changed throughout your career? Yeah, I, I actually don't know that it changed throughout my career. There was a realization as I was exploring ETA and this the budding ecosystem at the time and what I had in 
Fortune 100 security. And honestly, part of my fallback plan, if I had one, I, I, didn't, I burned the boats, so to speak. But it, my fallback was really, I could always go back into Fortune 100 company if I wanted to. I could go back to the same people that had you know, effectively professionally raised me for a decade. So I think, I think that risk profile was always there, which may be why I ultimately took the leap. I think now I have more conviction behind that as opposed to it being an unknown when I first started. I think that's all the questions we have. Again, Brian, sincere thanks and much appreciation. Thank you. Thank you.